Let us pray together. Lord, from ancient stories, help us to see ourselves and to hear you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are here on the third Sunday in the season of Epiphany. Epiphany meaning to discover, to find, in our case, the Lord. And we continue to listen for what God is asking of us as people who have met the Lord. Last week, we heard the conversation in John's gospel where Philip and Nathaniel each meet Jesus. If y'all remember, Philip is eager to become a disciple. Nathaniel is initially skeptical, and he is invited to come and see the Lord. This morning, we turn to another call story. There are many call stories in our scriptures. As Jesus calls two sets of brothers... Simon and Andrew, and James and John, sons of Zebedee. These become four of the first 12 disciples, and this time Jesus calls with the simple imperative, follow me. That is actually the definition of discipleship. It is to follow. Now today's lesson is from Mark's gospel, and for most of the weeks from now all the way to Easter, The lectionary gospel texts come from Mark. So before I read this morning's scripture, I want to just frame up some of our listening for the book of Mark. Mark was probably the first of the four New Testament gospels to be written and was even a source for Matthew and Luke as they were writing their gospels. But the tone of this gospel is quite different from the others. If you haven't spent time with Mark lately, For example, Luke. Luke gives a lot of detail. He sets each scene and places people in context. Luke loves a genealogy where he tells us this person was the son of this person was the son of this person as far back. He usually tells us who is in power as he tells the story of Jesus. Mark, on the other hand, gives almost no background information ever. He doesn't even start where the other Gospels start. He doesn't tell the story of the birth of Jesus. Chapter 1 of Mark begins when Jesus is already an adult. The whole book feels urgent and action-packed with scene after scene from Jesus' ministry. Mark doesn't even bother to transition between stories within the story. This Gospel is so light on narrative, it can actually be hard to read because it feels choppy and episodic. For example, just before our text for this morning, in Mark chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus is baptized. Kind of a big deal, one verse. In verse 10, the next verse, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. In verse 12, he's driven to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Verse 14, Jesus is suddenly out of the wilderness, John the Baptist has been arrested, and Jesus has picked up the baton of calling people to repent. All of that happens in five verses. Other Gospels take whole chapters to tell that part of the story. But Mark has no time for a long telling. Reading this book reminds me of watching old Batman episodes. Do you all remember the classic Batman You remember that old version before Hollywood effects were used on television? One minute, we would see Bruce Wayne and he would be at home in his study. And then the screen would spin around 
and suddenly we'd be across town and Batman would be fighting a bad guy. No transition. You all remember how that felt? Reading Mark is like that. So fast you go, wait, what? You have to keep alert to keep up. Now scholars debate why Mark uses so few details, but in a culture of short news cycles and short attention spans, Maybe this style helps us stay focused on the two things Mark wants us to know, the story of Jesus and the call to become disciples. Discipleship is urgent in this gospel. It's a matter of life and death, choosing the way of life in preparation for Christ's death. But throughout these stories, even the eager disciples struggle to understand. They get confused. They miss the point. They make wrong choices. They have these moments of epiphany, and then they turn around and deny their Lord. In that way, Mark is very much our story too. Discipleship is still an urgent choice, whether to follow God or give our allegiance to things that are not God, whether we will keep turning back to the way of our Lord, even when we get confused and miss the point, and make wrong choices. As I read Mark 1, 14 to 20, I invite you to both listen to and feel this text. There's almost no dialogue here as four people choose the life of discipleship. And these few verses feel deeply urgent. The time is now, and the invitation is there. Follow me. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. Now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here, Mark moves again with no explanation or fanfare from the ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of Jesus. And the word repent hangs in the air like a bubble in a graphic novel. That was John the Baptist's message, repent and get ready for the coming Lord. That message got John arrested. And here comes Jesus with the same sermon repent and believe the good news. Now the word repent might evoke a particular image for us, something more like a threat of fire and brimstone than an invitation to follow the Lord. Maybe we hear echoes of George Whitefield or Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God and warnings of eternal damnation. But let's demystify the word repent. The word repent means to turn. 
We'll talk more about it during Lent, I promise, for a long time. But to repent is to turn, to turn away from sin and wrongdoing, yes, but also to turn away from distraction, from the things that clamor for our attention and allegiance and our money and our trust. When Jesus begins to call people to follow him, to become his disciples, he invites them to turn instead toward him. We see it in the action of that handful of verses I just read. Jesus is passing along the Sea of Galilee. It almost sounds like he's out for a walk. And he happens to spot Simon and Andrew and calls out to them, follow me. Note that he does not threaten them with punishment or shame them. With these two words, follow me, he offers them a new way of life. He says, if you come, I'll make you into a new thing, a new kind of fisherman. I'll give you a new identity and you'll be part of the work of fishing for people. And immediately, says Mark, immediately they turn. It's a physical action. They turn away from the work they're doing. They turn toward the Lord and walk with him. And they turn away from all the things that had been their focus to take on that new identity. The same scene repeats as Jesus and now Simon and Andrew spot James and John, sons of Zebedee. Immediately, there it is again, Jesus calls them. And immediately they turn away from their jobs and their father and follow. This story is hard for would-be disciples. It shows us four people who respond immediately and without question. They walk away from the lives they've known, even from their families, to turn toward Jesus and the new life of sharing good news. That sounds like something to celebrate, but for us, that story presents a huge problem. This text seems to make discipleship an impossible and unreasonable option. Does following our Lord mean walking away from job and family? Is it a one-shot deal as Jesus is walking by, choose now or it'll be too late? That has been the definition all too often, as if discipleship is a momentary choice and one with stakes so high that none of us could accept them. If it means leaving our loved ones, the ask is too big, the timeline too urgent. We can't walk away from families and livelihood. In fact, if we only read these verses as our invitation to follow, we would all respectfully decline. But when we read them as part of the big story of Jesus continuing to invite, continuing to call, continuing to forgive when every disciple stumbles, we start to see discipleship not just as a moment to get saved or give your life to God, but as a choice we make over and over again every day. Elton Brown puts it this way, becoming a faithful Christian disciple takes both a moment and a lifetime. The urgency of this text is not to abandon job and family. Surely Christ doesn't actually want us to break up the relationships in which we love and are loved. The urgency 
is to see discipleship as a choice we make all the time, to see the way of our Lord as the better option on the other side of all the things that tempt us and claim authority over us. Discipleship is about turning, but it is not turning away from our lives. It is changing how we live them. I bet we don't often picture ourselves in the place of the four in our story this morning. We don't picture ourselves there at the Sea of Galilee, spotting Jesus beckoning and saying, follow me. That feels like some other person, some kind of life-changing decision that just doesn't come up on the regular. But every day, every one of us faces a hundred invitations to discipleship. A lot of what we do is so routine that it doesn't feel like we're making a choice at all. And it certainly doesn't make us think, oh, we're disciples who are supposed to walk away from our nets to go with God. But in every decision we make, we can turn toward the good news or turn away. And we make decisions all the time. In traffic, in the checkout line, hovering around the gate agent as they start to call the sections to board the plane, We make a choice as we sit down to write email. We make decisions about which news sources we read, about how we speak about each other. We choose how we give or don't, how we spend or don't, how we show up or don't, how we vote or don't. All choices, all opportunities to choose discipleship, all moments when we should picture ourselves by that lakeshore with Jesus looking on. And instead of a gentle, follow me, in this world, he's probably waving his arms, jumping up and down, frantically trying to get our attention and saying, hang on, here's a chance for you to follow me. Can you act with grace and love here? Can you choose patience and generosity Can you use your voice for peace rather than demeaning that person or group? Can you try to help? Can you empathize before you lash out or criticize? Have you used everything I've given you in a way that honors God? That opportunity is ours a hundred times a day, and that is what it actually looks like to live as a disciple. Now and for the long haul, both for a moment and for a lifetime. A friend recently reminded me of a metaphor Fred Craddock used. Fred Craddock was a great preacher and a very folksome storyteller. He used this metaphor to peel apart the tension between the seemingly too big ask of turning over our lives and the reality of living as disciples. Fred Craddock said, We think... Giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table. Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But the reality for most of us is that he sends us to the bank and has us cash in the $1,000 for quarters. We go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. Listen to the neighbor kid's troubles instead of saying, get lost. Go to a committee meeting, give a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home, 
Usually, giving our life to Christ is not glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. Friends, the invitation is still urgent, and it is still for us. Follow me, says our Lord. Now, and 25 cents at a time, every day, in every decision you make, repent, believe the good news, and follow me. Amen.